You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the work of author Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 3. Hi folks, welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City. If you want to learn more about that setting, please visit metamorecity.com. While if you want to learn more about me as an author and voice actor, you can find that information at chrislester.org. This podcast is being simulcast on both sites. Once again, we will kick off this week's show with your weekly writing report. My mission is to spend an average of one hour per day, six days per week, writing, and to share with you what I've written on the seventh day. This week I took an extra day before putting out this podcast because I had a long weekend and I wanted to spend Sunday evening at a party with some friends of mine. As an added incentive to keep writing, I am using the Magic Spreadsheet to keep track of my daily word count. For those of you who haven't heard of the Magic Spreadsheet, it uses gamification to reward writers for writing at least a little bit every single day. Every day in a row that you write adds to your chain, as they call it, and you earn points for the length of your chain in addition to your daily word count. It's addictive in the best possible way. As of Sunday, May 24th, I have kept my chain going for nine days straight, so even though I only committed to six days of writing per week, I'm actually managing to sneak in at least a little bit of writing on Sundays, too. If you're interested in checking out the Magic Spreadsheet, you can find it through Google+. Just search for Magic Spreadsheet, and the community should pop right up, with a link to the latest version of the spreadsheet. If you want to follow my progress, I'm on the tab labeled ISBW1. I wrote a total of 5,075 words this week, all of them on the novella To Walk in Shadow, with a combined writing time of 6.5 hours. On most days, I wrote for my targeted time of one hour, a little more on Monday and Saturday, and a little less on Thursday. My average writing speed was about 780 words per hour, which is a slight improvement over last week. Part two of the novella is now done, and part three is about three quarters done. The total word count for the story is up to a little less than 20,000 words. Now, let's get to the story. Today I'm going to read you the next piece of To Walk in Shadow. Part two turned out to be very long, over 8,000 words, so I'm actually going to break it into two episodes. You'll get part 2A this week, and part 2B in next week's episode. To Walk in Shadow by Chris Lester Part 2 The Path Jessup arrived at Ball's penthouse shortly before dusk. A woman answered the door, in tight leather pants and a white silk shirt. She was tall, slender, and pale, with jet-black hair that fell to the middle of her back. Her eastern eyes glittered an exotic aquamarine blue, and her ears rose to gentle points that suggested an elvish heritage. Her maroon-painted lips quirked into an amused smile as she looked down at him. "'Good evening, Lightbringer,' she said, her voice carrying only the barest hint of an eastern accent." How may I be of service? Um, milady, Jessup said, bowing stiffly. 
The woman returned the bow with effortless grace, never taking her eyes off him. I have the uh, contract here for, um... He raised the scroll Kaya had given him. It was in a black enameled scroll case with a silver pentagram on the side. Is he in? He stepped out for a moment, but he will return shortly, the woman said. I'm Seong Jin, his assistant. Please, come in. She opened the door wide, and tentatively, Jessup stepped inside. The penthouse was beautiful, but there was something stilted and oddly bland about it. The furniture was modern, sleek, and lacked any defining stylistic touches. The still-life paintings and abstract sculptures could have come from almost anywhere. It felt like a dentist's office. This looks... new, Jessup said, looking over the polished granite countertops and the brushed steel appliances in the kitchen. Yes, it is dreadful, isn't it? Xiang remarked. People in this city are always remaking things, changing them. There is no sense of history, no respect for the memory of a place. Jessup set the scroll case on the kitchen island. Did this used to be someplace important? Not in the sense that you mean it, Xiong said. But for our purposes, yes, its history is important. This building has strong ties to shadow. It will make the first part of our journey easier. There was a set of padded bar stools next to the island. Jessup sat on one of them. And, um, what is our journey, anyway? I mean, I know moving through shadow is supposed to be fast, but I don't really understand why. Hmm. Seong looked around for a moment, spotted a stack of paper bar napkins on the counter, and took one. She took a pen from a drawer and sat down beside him. Imagine that this is Metamore she said, drawing a dot in one corner of the napkin. And this, she said, adding another dot in the opposite corner, is Estorini. What is the shortest distance between the two points? In answer, Jessup traced his finger in a line from one point to the other. Yes, Siong agreed. Now. She folded the napkin in half crosswise, so that the second dot was hanging a few millimeters above the first dot. What is the shortest distance between them now? Jessup stared at her. Are you saying he's going to fold space? Xiong laughed, a deep, rich, throaty sound. <laughs> no, no, agent. Space is already folded. And twisted and turned and... Well. She crumpled the napkin into a rough ball, then held it up by way of example. You live on the surface of the paper. You cannot see the folds. Crossing into shadow means passing between the folds, and two places that are very near in space may be connected to very different places through the ways of shadow. Jessup frowned. But I thought that shadow was like a mirror of our world, like if I passed into shadow in this room, I'd see another version of this room. That is true, Xiang said. But that is only the near shadow what my master calls the penumbra. It closely reflects the material world, and most practitioners never pass beyond it. But the penumbra is only a thin skin over reality. To travel more than a short distance, you must pass beyond it, into deep shadow. I see, Jessup said. And, um, what is deep shadow like? It is like nothing, 
Xiang said. You will see it soon enough. Just then a door in the hallway opened, and Baal emerged from the shadows behind it. It appeared to be an empty coat closet. All is in readiness, he said to Xiang. Ah, and I see that our escort has arrived. Welcome. Thank you, Lord Baal, Jessup said, bowing deeply. I um, have the contract here. Baal took the scroll case, opened it, and scanned the contents for perhaps a minute in complete silence. At last he nodded in satisfaction, rolled up the scroll, and returned it to the case. Very good, he said, passing the scroll to Siang. She crossed the kitchen to the living room and flipped one of the paintings out from the wall, revealing a safe with an electronic keypad. She typed in a combination, opened the safe, and placed the scroll inside. While she did this, Baal turned his attention to Jessup. Your mistress has lent your services to me. Under the terms of our contract, Xiong Jin and I must do our best to protect you. In exchange, you must obey our instructions, and do your best to protect Jin. If you should perish or become injured while acting in obedience to us, you or your family shall be compensated. If you disobey our orders, however, the agreement is void. Do you understand? Jessup nodded, but then an ugly thought struck him. Does the contract, um, put any limits on what you can order me to do, Lord? Of course, Baal said, looking oddly pleased. My authority over you extends only to those actions necessary to accomplish our present mission. I may not employ your services to harm mortals, or compel you to break your oaths to the Lothanasi or the Empire. Finally, if at any time you judge that the mission must be aborted, we will bring you home by the safest means available. Do you understand? I do, Jessup said. Baal looked at him intently. Do you agree to abide by the terms of this contract? Yes, Jessup said. The prince nodded, looking satisfied. Very well. For obvious reasons, I shall not ask you to swear by your name. Your oath to your mistress will suffice. Now, has Xiong Jin explained what to expect in our journey? A little, Lord, Jessup said. She said we need to cross through deep shadow to reach Esterini. But I don't really know what that means. The devil showed a flash of his teeth. No, you do not. Blue-white eyes regarded Jessup for a long moment before he continued. Our journey will proceed in three stages. We shall cross through the penumbra until we find a way into deep shadow. We shall follow that way through intersections with other ways, until we find a path that leads toward Estorini. Lastly, we shall cross out of deep shadow and return to the penumbra, whence we shall seek a convenient exit to the material realm. All right, Jessup said. Is there anything else I should know? Stay close to Xiongjin, Bao said. To find the way, I must send my presence far and wide down the winding paths of shadow. You will not always see me, and while I search, my attention will be divided. You both must watch over one another and protect each other until I return. Jessup looked over at Xiong Jin, who had sealed the safe and was striding back toward them. She'd picked up a small backpack along the way, as well as a tactical harness, and she adjusted the straps on them as she approached. She moved like a Lightbringer field commander, balanced and centered and as graceful as a leopard. 
She had only one weapon that Jessup could see, a jeweled dagger that rode in a sheath on her left hip, but he didn't doubt her abilities for a second. "'Protect each other from what, Lord?' Jessup asked. "'Shadow is home to many things,' Bal said. "'Some recognize my rule, but others do not. All of them hunger for life and warmth. Be wary, young Lightbringer.' He led them to the closet, then put out his hand. "'You must hold on to my hand or Xiang's in order to cross to the other side,' he said. Jessup's skin crawled, but he took a deep breath and then took the devil's hand. The coal-black skin was smooth and cool. Ball stepped into the shadow at the back of the closet, pulling Jessup along with him. Something like a cold fog wrapped itself around them, blinding Jessup for a moment— and then they were walking out of the closet, moving in the opposite direction to the one in which they had been heading. The darkness parted around them, and Jessup stared. It both was and was not the apartment that they had left. In the first place, it was dark. A twilight gloom filled the space, all colors muted to dull grays, while the corners once veiled in shadow were now a lighter shade of gray. A moment later, Jessup realized another difference— Everything was backwards. The door that had opened right now opened left. The locations of the living room and the kitchen had been reversed, and so on. It was as if they had stepped into a photographic negative of the world Jessup knew. The air was cold and as dry as a tomb. Even the fog that had shrouded their crossing left no trace of moisture on their skin. An eerie stillness filled the place, deadening the sound of their footsteps. Jessup could hear the pulse of blood in his own temples, and below that a deep, heavy sound, more felt than heard, that thrummed against his chest and reminded him of Ball's aircraft. The thumb rose and fell in a slow, steady rhythm. Jessup imagined a great, sleeping beast, as big and old as the world, shaking the realm of shadow with the slow, inexorable beating of its enormous heart. Ball paused in the entry hall, his electric blue eyes scanning their surroundings. He stretched out his hands to either side, and darkness billowed out from them like smoke. One dark cloud flowed in a straight line to the front door. The other snaked through the apartment, across the kitchen, and through the living room, and disappeared into what Jessup assumed was the bedroom on the far side. Ball craned back his neck and then stood still, the shadow stuff undulating slowly up and down, like banners in a gentle breeze. Jessup felt a prickling across his skin, and his arcane senses reported a phantom smell of ozone. Ball's working looked relatively simple, but there was a phenomenal amount of power behind it. "'What is he doing?' Jessup whispered to Xiong Jin. "'He's reaching out with his essence,' Xiong said, her voice low and reverent." feeling for places where we may cross out of the penumbra. Mortals cannot make the crossing easily, so he must find a place where the barriers are weak. Jessup nodded thoughtfully. And there should be one close by? Given the history of this place, it is likely. A powerful shadow crafter lived in this building for many years, and she wove shadow workings around it to disguise her activities. This drew the attention of shadow. Jessup looked at her in alarm. That slow, thrumming heartbeat seemed to grow louder. Attention? he asked. Is Shadow a place or a... being? 
He could barely whisper the last word. Xiang looked at him impassively. Yes, she said. Baal lowered his head, and the clouds of essence drew back into his hands. This way, he said, and headed across the flat to the back door. Jessup followed, and Xiong Jin came at a pace behind him, as silent as a panther. The room beyond the door may once have been a bedroom, but it bore little resemblance to one now. The walls were stripped down to studs and insulation, and crumbled bits of plaster. The wooden floor was charred around a squarish, jagged hole, roughly a meter on each side. It opened on a featureless gray void, as impenetrable as complete darkness. A wrought-iron ladder protruded from the hole and bent over to anchor itself on one side. The empty shell of another small chamber, perhaps a bathroom, stood at the far side of the room, but apart from that, there were no other ways in or out. A small, pale figure sat on the floor before the hole, clothed in a tattered gray dressing gown. The slender frame and long, wispy black hair made Jessup think of a human girl, perhaps seven or eight years old. It turned its head as they approached, moving with reptilian slowness, and then Jessup saw its face. It was not a girl. The face was little more than the rough outline of a face, nose, lips, ears, and cheeks, all reduced to smooth, abstract suggestions, as if a sculptor had left them half-finished and then polished the result. The eyes, though, were fully formed, too large to be human, and as black and glossy as a raven's. The eyes stared at them, wide, empty, and unblinking. Jessup's stomach twisted, revulsion mixed with pity. What is that? he whispered. Is it a ghost? His superiors in the Lothanasi assured him that ghosts were impossible, but he had always wondered. We call them the forlorn, Xiang said. Her tone was neutral, impassive. They are not human spirits, though perhaps they believe they are. Do not approach it. Ball strode into the room and passed the forlorn, ignoring it. The creature shied away from him, then fell prostrate and covered its head with its hands. Ball knelt beside the gray void and reached a hand into it. The gray swallowed his hand, as if he had extended it into a fog bank. There is a way here, he said. I must go ahead of you now to scout the path. Wait for my summons. At this, Ball's form dissolved into black smoke, which flowed swiftly into the void and vanished. The room felt even colder and darker with Baal's absence. Xiong Jin stood in silence, her posture relaxed but alert, her hand resting lightly on the handle of her dagger. She seemed to be listening more than looking for danger, her eyes half-closed and distant. Jessup felt his own eyes being drawn back to the wretched creature across the room. "'Where did the forlorn come from?' he asked." His voice came out low, though he hadn't particularly intended to speak quietly. Something about this realm seemed to stifle speech, like walking through a mausoleum. Shadow spawns them, Xiong said. Her voice was still flat, sounding almost bored. They rise in response to events in the mortal world. Likely a child suffered in this place, abuse or neglect over several years. The forlorn is a reflection of that. Gods. 
Jessup felt a stab of sympathy for the creature and for the tragedy that had given it this mockery of life. You poor thing. Immediately, the forlorn sat up, spun around, and looked at him. Jessup felt something grab him, an unseen force that seemed to wrap around his heart and pull in the direction of the creature. He tried to move and found that he couldn't. The forlorn began crawling toward him on its hands and knees. Its unfinished slit of a mouth opened, revealing darkness within, and the pull on Jessup's heart intensified. He felt as if something was being sucked out of him, consumed. His knees began to tremble, his vision dimmed. And then a ring of solid darkness flew up around the forlorn. The dark energy formed itself into a cocoon around the creature, trapping it and holding it still. The grip on Jessup's heart released itself. Lightbringer! Jessup looked up and saw Xiang with her hands outstretched toward the cocoon of darkness. She had her dagger in one hand and wove an intricate pattern in the air with the other. I can only contain it, she said, her voice thick with effort. You can banish it. Use your power. For one panicked moment, Jessup didn't understand what she was talking about. Then he suddenly realized why they had needed him. What banishes shadows? Stretching out his right hand toward the forlorn, Jessup summoned up the divine energy that had been invested within him when he joined the Lothanasi. With an effort of will, he channeled that energy out through his fingertips. An orb of brilliant light, about the size of an apple, streaked out of his open hand and struck the trapped forlorn. The shadow cocoon melted away instantly, and the orb struck the creature directly in the face. The forlorn let out an eerie, whistling howl and folded in on itself, like a handkerchief being pulled through a hole. In less than a second, it had vanished completely. Jessup let out a breath he hadn't realized he was holding. He looked over at Xiang, her chest heaving with the exertion of her spell. You all right? Xiang nodded and returned the dagger to its sheath. You saved my life, Jessup said. Your compassion nearly killed you, Xiang said, her voice sharp. My master warned you. The shadows spawn hunger for life, for warmth. They hunger for the things they are not. Do you understand? Jessup thought hard. The forlorn are created from abuse and neglect, so they hunger for the opposite, for love and compassion. Yes, Xiang said. Every shadow spawn craves the thing that would have ended the suffering that created them. They are drawn to that thing, and they will take it from you. They are made of need, of loss, of emptiness. There is no sating them. Jessup shivered, and it wasn't just from the cold. So to protect yourself, I harden myself, yes, Siong said. I deny them the sustenance they crave. You must become like a stone, cold, hard, unyielding. Then they will not see you. I'm not sure I can do that, Jessup admitted. Then let us hope that your power is sufficient to protect us, Lightbringer. A cloud of darkness emerged from the gray hole, reconstituting itself into the form of Baal. He turned his gaze on Xiang, his expression grave. I sensed a proxy spell. Is everything all right? Some emotion Jessup couldn't identify flickered across the woman's face. She bowed her head to the prince. Yes, master. The Lightbringer encountered a forlorn. Ah. 
Baal glanced at Jessup. He seems to be intact. Well done. Siong bowed more deeply. Jessup thought he saw the hint of a smile on her lips. The path is clear for the moment, Baal said, making a gathering gesture toward the two of them. We must go now. Agent, follow close behind me and watch your step. Jin, got our backs. He moved back toward the hole then, and put his hands and feet on the rungs of the ladder as a mortal would. His body vanished into the gray nothing, but Jessup could still hear the ring of his shoes against the metal rungs as he descended. Taking a deep breath, Jessup followed. The void closed around him, leaving Jessup blind to anything but his own body and the rungs of the ladder immediately before him. Each footfall rang out clearly, but there were no echoes that he could discern. The space through which they climbed seemed endlessly vast, with no walls to return the sound. Jessup lost track of time. His muscles ached. His hands were chilled from gripping the cold metal, and still they descended. The end of the ladder came as a shock. Jessup put down a foot, landed on empty air, and suddenly found himself hanging by his hands above more invisible nothingness. "'Don't be alarmed,' Baal's voice came from somewhere below him, a distance of perhaps three or four meters. "'The way is solid here. You will come to no harm.' Jessup let his body stretch as far as it would go, then released his grip on the ladder. As soon as his feet hit something solid, he fell into a crouch, letting his legs gradually absorb the force of the landing, just as he had been trained to do. The impact was jarring, but he didn't break anything. As he rose to his feet, Siong landed beside him, as graceful and cat-like as ever. Jessup looked around at the place where he had landed. The gray void hung three meters above them like a fog bank, but below that a landscape of sorts spread out around them. The ground resembled a dry lake bed, gray-brown and hard, and fractured into irregular geometric shapes. In the distance, perhaps half a kilometer or more, jagged slopes rose up from the lake bed and vanished into the gray nothingness. Immediately at their feet, Jessup looked down and saw a path. Polished black stones, pentagons and hexagons in an interlocking pattern, stretching out into the distance to the left and the right. Jessup felt divine power emanating from them, and the flavor of it was familiar. He looked at Baal. You built this. I improved it, Baal said, made it more durable against the forces that shaped this place. The paths were there if you knew how to look for them, but they were a great deal more treacherous before I came. He turned and began walking to the right, then stopped and looked back over his shoulder. I probably don't have to say this, but stay on the path if you ever wish to go home again. Jessup swallowed. I, uh, thought it might be something like that. They continued on without another word. For the next several hours, their journey resembled a long walk through a bare, empty desert. The road carried them over hills and through narrow defiles and over flat, featureless plains. Jessup never saw a plant, an animal not even a mat of bacteria in that barren place. There was only the road, and the wasteland through which it ran with ruler-straight precision. Most importantly, he also saw no water, so when Siong produced a canteen from her pack, he accepted it gratefully. "'I see why you said it was like nothing,' Jessup said. "'Is all of Deep Shadow this empty?' "'Not all of it. But we are well inside the Master's territory.' 
his servants amassed primarily on the borders. Jessup looked up at Baal, who seemed to take little interest in their conversation. The devil watched the horizon intently as he walked, but Jessup couldn't imagine what he saw there. I thought Baal controlled all of Shadow, Jessup said. Who else holds territory here? No one, in the sense that you mean it. But parts of Shadow resist his rule. It is a realm of chaos, and the master imposes order upon it. Just as the penumbra creates shadow spawn like the forlorn, the deep shadow creates defenses against the master's rule. They came to the top of a low rise, and a broad plain spread out below them. Down the center of that plain, a great distance off, a long black wall stretched out of view to left and right. Beyond the wall, a darkness clung to the land like fog. It roiled and churned, twisting and curling like smoke. Jessup had no idea what it was, and was distinctly worried that he was going to find out. The road they were on ran down into the plain and converged with several others at a tall, blocky structure, about twice the height of the wall itself. Jessup couldn't see details from this distance, but he assumed it was some kind of fortress, an anchor point in the wall's defenses. Ball stopped at the top of the rise and stretched his right hand overhead, fingers splayed, A burst of cerulean light erupted from his hand and shot into the air, where it burst like a firework into the shape of the pentagram. Some seconds later, an answering sign blossomed over the fortress. Good, they are holding, Baal said. Come. He strode down the hill, walking with a little more urgency than he had before. Jessup and Tsiung followed. Jessup soon found that he had underestimated the height of the wall, the size of the fortress, and the distance to both. What he had first taken to be a span of three or four kilometers turned out to be more than ten. The wall rose towering into the sky, fifty meters at least. Not much compared to the towers of Metamore, to be sure, but far more impressive because of the utter desolation that surrounded it. The fortress, a hundred meters tall and more than twice as wide, was a hulking beast of polished basalt, with crenellated towers and gates of black iron. It looked like something out of the ancient past, a castle built to repel barbarians. The gates swung open as they approached, and an eerie, warbling horn blast sounded from the parapets. Jessup looked up and saw figures appearing along the battlements, humanoids dressed in gleaming black armor with the Star of Baal glowing on their chests. The master returns, one shouted. Hail, the Prince of Shadow! Hail! The others shouted in answer, and as one they raised their mailed fists to the sky. Baal returned the salute, solemnly raising his right fist. To your posts, he said, and though he did not seem to raise his voice, the sound of it echoed from the walls. The soldiers dispersed then, and a minute later six of them emerged to welcome them at the gates. One wore a helm with a plume of black raven feathers, like an old Swaleman centurion. He knelt before Baal as they approached. "'Captain Wagen,' Baal said to him, "'report.' "'Castle Dauntless stands firm, my lord,' Vargan said. The man was human, or seemed to be, with pale skin and dark hair and eyes. He was also nearly seven feet tall, as Jessup discovered when he rose to his feet— The rebels have made four assaults on this position in the last fortnight. None penetrated the outer defenses. Diversions, Baal said. Have you detected any infiltrators? 
Yes, my lord, Vargan said. There is a spot in the wall where the wards have weakened, between here and Castle Venator. Our patrols caught a few spies that had wormed their way through. I shall attend to the wards tomorrow, Baal said. For now my companions require food and rest, and I must consult the scrying stone. See to it. Vargan placed his fist over his heart. At once, my lord. He turned to Siong and Jessup. Sir, milady, please follow me. Siong looked an unspoken question at Baal. Go, Baal said. For the work I must do now, neither of you can help me. Take your ease while you can. Siong bowed to him, then turned to follow Vargan. Jessup fell into step beside her. And that's the first half of part two. Tune in next week for the second half. Now, let's get to some feedback. Sarah Testarossa has been catching up on the backlogs of the Metamore City podcast, and she sent me some of the most wonderful feedback as she worked her way through three years' worth of episodes. Here she has some feedback on Nobilis's story, Dreams of Change, which I narrated and produced. Sarah had some feline trouble while recording this voicemail, so I'm editing it for time. Hopefully this will be amusing rather than stupid. Anyway, um, I think it's funny that hearing you narrate one of Nobilis's stories, because, you know, you guys definitely have your own unique voices in terms of narration and in terms of writing style, but I feel like it's just interesting because I never really compared your guys' writing styles before, and I'm not really doing it now intentionally, but basically listening to this story and you reading it, I realize that, like, I can think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's as if maybe it is your story, but different. And I know that sounds really weird, but I think that's why I think it's so cool that, like, how much he gets into your world, because it really legitimately, you know, it fits. And I think that's, you know, one of the thing, great things about fan fiction, and I think that's why it ticks me off when people knock fan fiction and saying, oh, it doesn't take any creativity. Bullshit. And I think it actually takes a lot of energy to be able to make something that fits as seamlessly into the world. So I really have to commend Nobilis for this. Did you want to let me know whether you can uh, send him, whether he can, you can make it so he can hear this file, because otherwise I'll, like send him a message or something. I hope you're not taking this the wrong way or anything, because I love both of your writing styles, and they definitely are different. It's just, it's cool seeing him playing in your world and how much it fits. But uh, anyway, so, like, in terms of details, there's, you know, a lot I like about the story, but I feel like I've rambled on enough already, and so I'll leave this message here and then probably comment after either the next chapter or the end of the story. Thanks for calling in, Sarah. I do love having other authors come play in my sandbox, so producing Dreams of Change for Metamore City was a real treat. I've passed on your message to Nobilis as well. Hey there, Chris. Uh, long-time listener here. Uh, first off, I wanted to say happy birthday. I know that's uh, either yesterday or today. Uh, second, I want to say I'm really glad to be hearing you guys you doing the story again. It's a little disappointing to hear that uh, Things Unseen isn't going to be finished the way we started, but it's really good to hear your voice again, and it's great to hear some more story. 
yeah, keep up the good work, and uh, thank you once again. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. And yes, this voicemail did come in on May 19th, which is indeed my birthday. Thanks for noticing. I received email feedback from Tarmo in Finland, who wrote, I agree that the stories are more important than full cast. I'm listening to Hunters Unlucky, and there's no problem with having a single narrator do all the voices, as long as the narrator remembers to reproduce each voice faithfully. Although when your stories get romantic or sexual, having even a single female narrator for the female characters might be something to consider. But I do like your attitude and timeboxing strategy. Keep it up. Thanks, Tarmo. I agree that Rish Outfield does a fantastic job with the voices on Hunter's Unlucky. Not everyone can do it as well as Rish can, and sometimes having different narrators for different viewpoint characters can be a good way around this. That's how Blackstone Audio handles it when producing some of Orson Scott Card's novels. In other cases, they might have separate voice actors for characters of the opposite gender which are inserted into the narration for the other voice actor. That's how parts of the audiobook for Dune were done, and it's the approach I was using for Things Unseen before I had to put it on hold. I like both of these solutions, but for The Raven and the Writing Desk, I think it's just going to be me. The whole point of this format is to keep things as simple as possible, and not have to depend on anyone else's schedule. So far, I think it's working. Incidentally, since we're on the subject of Hunter's Unlucky, I'd like to mention that I got another message from Abby Hilton. She would like you all to know that for a limited time, Hunter's Unlucky is being aired for free on the Worlds of Abigail Hilton podcast feed. If you're hearing this episode later, and you missed getting the whole book, Abby has promised to keep parts one and two of Hunter's Unlucky on the feed indefinitely. That's several hours of audio, and definitely enough to get you hooked on this wonderful story. I'll have a link in the show notes. Lastly, here's a message from our own Mildred Katie. Hi, boss. The librarian's desk has been a bit empty, so I'm glad that you're back to give me more work. And I loved both Clean Up on Skyway 3 and the first part of To Walk in Shadow. I'm looking forward to the rest. And do we already know Baal's agent? Perhaps another character introduced through an audio drama? Like Nobilis, I have some Metamore City stories in the works, so hearing you more often on the airwaves should push me to finish what I started and go further. Keeping it bright and respecting the dark. Mildred, Metamore City Librarian. Thanks, Millie. And as you already know, if you've listened this far, you were exactly right about Ball's agent. Seong Jin was created by Millie and me for our 2013 drama, Rafa Kaliri and the Book of Shadows. It was recorded live at Balticon 47, and you can find it in the special episodes section of the archives at metamorecity.com. Last week, I told you about J. Daniel Sawyer's book, Making Tracks, which is being offered as part of a package on writing at storybundle.com. This week, we have a quick promo about it. Persistence, practice, perseverance. If you want to write, you need them all. But to win the writing game, you can never, never, never stop learning. Now, for a limited time only, multiple award-winning author and international bestseller Christine Catherine Rush brings you The Right Stuff at StoryBundle.com. 
This 11-book craft and business toolkit shows you how to move from idea to novel with or without an outline, beat writer's block and win NaNoWriMo, and make the most of your fantasy world whether it has horses or dragons. You'll also get step-by-step -step guides on how to set up your writing business, produce your own audiobooks, cope with reversals in traditional publishing, and keep your head in the game with your traditional hybrid or indie. Get your copy of The Right Stuff now at storybundle.com. Act now. Offer ends June 3rd. That does it for this week. If you'd like to leave feedback, you can email me at metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900. And enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. I'd love to hear from you. And as I get more voicemails, I'll play them here on the air. You can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, and my blog is at chrislester.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. This recording is copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>